we are back. Behind the Lens is back for yet another week. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, composers, sound mixers, sound editors, VFX uh, artisans, uh, yeah, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. We've been doing a lot of talking recently. This has been one packed month of October. September was packed, too, with lots of live talent happening here. Well, we've got more wonderful filmmakers joining us live today. In just a moment here, he's already on the line on hold. Director Mark Marriott is with us to talk about his first feature directorial written by a dear filmmaking friend of mine who I have known since the world premiere of his very, very first film, Big Dreams Little Tokyo, uh, Dave Boyle. Uh, Dave is actually in Japan right now shooting a series, so he won't be joining us, but his partner in crime, Mark Marriott, is going to join us here in a second. And then later on in the show, we've got Jeremy Peon Berlin joining us to talk about his Talk about a hot-button documentary, Failure to Protect. That takes a look at five parents of five families uh, and the child protective services issues in the state of California. Uh, it's an interesting documentary, to say the least. So I can't, I'm really looking forward to speaking with Jeremy about his take on um, his approach to telling this story. But right now, without any further ado, got to say a big hello to Mark Marriott. Hi, Mark. Yes, hello. Good morning in uh, Hawaii, at least. Oh, you're in Hawaii. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Oh, <laughs> Annie didn't, uh, nobody told, Annie didn't tell me you were in Hawaii. I know we got Dave in Japan. You're in Hawaii. Yes. Our filmmakers are just little world travelers. You're just little. You're just little world travelers, Mark. Uh, I well, happy to be here. Well, I'm and hello, Dave. <laughs> well, he's not on the line. I wish he was. Uh, oh shoot! Yeah, yeah. I wish he was. I've covered Me every too. film of Dave since his. As I was saying at the top of the show, since his very first feature, Big Dreams, Little Tokyo. Um, wow. Uh, he is. I've known him longer than my has known him than his wife has known him. So <laughs> wow, that's incredible. He is. He is really incredible. I love Dave. Well, and that's one thing. Number one, that was the, the minute that I heard about Tokyo Cowboy and that Dave was one of the writers on it. Okay, I'm in. I'm going to see it. Uh, yeah. No questions asked. But once I started watching the film, it has his great sensibility of melding the different cultures, the American and the Japanese. And he always does it so beautifully when he's writing and directing. And now to see your visual spin on this to bring this story to life. This is a pure delight and a joy to watch this film. It is so well-crafted. It is written well. The characters are wonderful. The character development, the journey that the characters go on, uh, 
Um, you know, Hideki, it, he doesn't just go on a journey. We have Javier going on a journey, our ranch hand. We have every, yeah, that's right. everybody is going on journeys here from both sides of the Pacific. Uh, and it just plays out so beautifully. And, of course, you shot it. You're fulfilling you're fulfilling the gap for all the Yellowstone fans out there uh, <laughs> because we haven't been able to see any fresh footage of Paradise Valley in Montana. So you've taken That's care right. of that for all of us. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm delighted that you like the film. I'm, that's so wonderful. How did this, this is your first feature directorial, and this is quite an undertaking because not only are you shooting on location in Montana, which now has a great film support system happening up there, which we're, I want to get into with you in a, in a minute here, but yeah. you, you have the location, the you've got challenges of the logistics. You obviously you're shooting with mud, manure, um, cows, horses, chickens. Um, you know, WC Fields said never work with animals and kids. Well, I think you made up for it here with a multiplicity of different kinds of animals. Yes, we did. We, we shot on this real ranch in uh, the Paradise Valley, the O'Hare Ranch. Judy O'Hare and her family were very kind to, to welcome us. And this truly is a, a multicultural uh, undertaking. And it was important to us. Um, Brigham Taylor, my producing partner in this, and I, you know, our earliest conversations about this were just, you know, we really wanted to make something grounded and authentic and where we could just follow that character's journey. Um, and re and truly make it multicultural, and that's why um, it was actually Brigham that introduced me to Dave. Uh, Brigham had worked with Dave a little bit on a Disney project that um, uh, didn't go anywhere, but um, he introduced me to Dave, and then we were and then we said, you know, Dave, we really need um, a Japanese writer to to uh, um, co-write with you if possible and and uh, ayako fujitani mm -hmm. was the one that um he had worked with of course on man from reno and i knew yep. her from that project i was a big fan of her acting work and when i uh found out that she was a writer we just thought it was the perfect uh combination and they they combined to make just an amazing script we you know you got to start with a good script and and they really came through now it, the whole premise of this film it's you know, we have a lot of we've seen a lot of fish out of water scenarios happen before in film. Sure. Quite often, it's a great movie vehicle. It brings in inherent humor. It also brings in some emotional pathos and gravitas, depending on the approach. So I'm curious, who came up with the idea for this film and to pick a location of? Paradise Valley, Montana, which is about as far as you can get from Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the the beginnings of this story go way back, actually. Um, 30 years ago, I lived in Japan for two years as a missionary. And then after that experience, I went back and I worked with a very well-known Japanese master, Yoji Yamada, uh, the director Yoji Yamada, who did the Torasan film series. Mm -hmm. And I worked with him on the 42nd film in the Torasan film series. 
and in fact, there's this Hawaii um, festival is kind of a full circle moment because Yoji Yamada is now 91 years old and he just released his 91st film and it's in competition here in Hawaii with my film. Um, so that's a really amazing um, thing for me. Wow. Um, so around that same time, um, it was, gosh, it was like 1992, I saw an article in Outside Magazine, and the title of the article was Samurai Slickers. And <laughs> it was about a ranch in Montana owned by a Japanese company called Zenshiku, and they would send Japanese workers over to Montana to learn ranching, and they'd become cowboys. And that just stuck in my head, and I just thought, that is a movie. There, there, there's, that's the beginning of an idea. So that was kind of the nugget of the idea. And then all these many year, years later, I um, had been working with Brigham Taylor. Uh, you, you may know Brigham is a, a very well-known studio producer. He did, you know, uh, Jungle Book and mm -hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean, yep. Tron. I worked with him on Christopher Robin. I did the behind-the-scenes and bonus feature uh, work for Christopher Robin. And, and I had known Brigham for many years as well. We went to our undergraduate uh, university together and moved to Los Angeles around the same time. And, and I said, you know, I, I really would like to make a feature film. And he was gracious and kind enough to uh, entertain my ideas and... Uh, I pitched him this, you know, simple idea about, you know, what if, what if there was a Japanese businessman who, for some reason, has to go and like improve this cattle ranch in Montana, and 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 where could that story go? And so we developed that together. And Brigham and I both have the story by credit. And then, um, you know, we we uh, were so lucky to uh, involve Dave Boyle. Our first meeting with Dave, he, you know, he said, this is a really different film than what he normally had worked on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, his are, are very, very tightly constructed. And, and yeah. um, uh, you know, Man from Reno is this, is this awesome, you know, tightly constructed, beautiful thriller. And um, this, this film really is a film that is, um, you know, there's no, there's no obvious antagonist right um and and it's it's just about this fish out of water story and this and it's about you know bridging these divides between cultures and people and two fish out of water stories you know with with as you mentioned Hideki and Javier yeah I so it, that was the beginning of this now I want to know when did the Wagyu beef aspect come into this I mean <laughs> you do something really fun here um, number one, you open the film in a chocolate factory. Okay, you have in that moment won over probably 90% of your entire audience watching chocolate mm. being made and eaten. <laughs> and it looks pretty and tasty. And then you move from chocolate and we get into Wagyu beef. Uh, yeah, you got the best of, of of both worlds here from a food perspective. But oh yeah, Wagyu yeah. <laughs> beef and and cattle uh, that are the foundation for Wagyu uh, is not something that we've ever seen. 
So mm. where did this very unique aspect arise? Was that from Dave and Ayaku? Um, you, Brigham, who brought in who brought in the cows, the cow beef idea? Well, we, yeah, we had that kind of beginning idea about a, a businessman coming to a ranch in Montana, and what would he be doing to improve this ranch? You know, he, you know, he would be bringing something Japanese to to the ranch, and and of course, you know, this is about a character Hideki, who's you know just kind of a he's he's your typical you know efficiency expert he's just going to make things more efficient and he thinks he's making things better with the chocolate and with the wagyu and but he's really not and he you know comes to realize that over the course of the story but but um the so we had the initial idea and thought about that but it was really dave and ayako that deep um research that helped us kind of fill out that story about like where what's the history of wagyu beef and and um in america particularly and is is this even possible and um so yeah i I credit them for their their great research and and um i i I do think it was dave's idea about this uh chocolate factory you know something that we could show at the beginning very visually Mm -hmm. uh, you know he's he's this chocolate factory but he doesn't want to taste the chocolate yeah right he's he's not interested in being a craftsman and really loving what what the product is he's just interested in making it more efficient and making more money mm-hmm. and you know and that's very important the way that this is structured and set up because we see that play out very beautifully with the little hotel bed and breakfast uh, Cindy. Cindy, who is <laughs> yeah. just she she just gives such adorable comic relief in this film. She, she is delightful. She is, she just brightens things up because and it's a perfect counter to Hideki, who is so serious, doesn't crack yeah. a smile. It's not <laughs> until the third act where we see him loosen up. Yeah, uh, we have seen you know. We've seen him fall in mud and manure and get covered in that, w- trying to wash his suit in a, you know, a hotel sink. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to know how good that hair dryer was to dry that entire suit and it didn't <laughs> shrink. That's yeah. what I. That's what I want to know. But it's uh, everything is so serious, and he's trying to be efficient, but you're dealing with a bunch of cowboys ranch hands yeah you've got cows wandering chickens wandering horses uh these things that you know you cannot control with efficiency to 100 percent. so it's really intriguing to watch this play out and it really is there's you know there's a lot of comic moments in it. It, 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 it is really funny um but we, you know, again, that was something that we talked about early on that just like every every comic moment, everything like that needs to be grounded in reality and authenticity. We, we can never be, you know, just reaching for a joke. And so I think that's why a lot of the comedy, hopefully, to audiences is very satisfying uh, because it comes, you know, it's, it's earned and, it's, and it comes as a natural out, out yes. break of, of, you know, his journey. 
Yeah, the fact that the comedy is it's so natural and it stems from just the foibles of everyday life. Yeah. There's nothing set up. It's not structured. I mean, falling off a horse. How many people out there, the first time they try to get in a horse, have fallen off? Yeah. I'm sure many more than <laughs> will ever admit it. Uh, but you see these things. But what you also what also really comes across so strongly with this story and with the way you have shot this uh, and and cut it is the dynamic between Javier and Hideki, um, because Javier is really the odd man out. You see this when all the ranch hands are sitting together in the barn to hear Hideki's presentation on how how he's going to save this ranch. Yeah. And Javier is off by himself, away from the other ranch hands. Yes. And then he's the one that gets tasked with showing Hideki around the ranch. So you essentially have two fish-out-of-water guys here that are yeah. both out of their natural element, and now they're put together with Javier, who has learned... He's learned how to be a ranch hand, and he's also learned a few other things, too, how to be a yeah. farmer. Um, yeah. So, But to watch that and the way that you have paced this, the way you have shot their relationship um, using the guys on horses with positioning, with POV, and with who's mm -hmm. leading whom until they're finally on equal footing. And I think that's so interesting what you and your DP, what Oscar Ignacio Jimenez have done. Um, yeah. Is how I, you I really that. have to uh, say that working with Oscar Jimenez was such a joy. And uh, he, he's a major talent. And, and he every day he brought um, something important to the to the set, which was just really talking about you know, what is this scene about? What are, what are we um, trying to, what's the emotional core of the scene, right? And, and early on in our discussions, even before we started filming, we kind of referenced um, some different films that we loved and films where the camera is trained and we're not covering every angle. We're choosing very care carefully what we choose to, to cover and how mm. to shoot it and and uh, we were inspired. I, I was inspired by films like um, Tender Mercies, um, Robert Duvall and um, Minari. Um, there was a film called Local Hero that we mm -hmm. referenced a bit, um, that, which is also about a businessman um, going to, uh, I think it was Ireland. Um, but yeah, Oscar Jimenez is, was really, really wonderful to work with. Now, given the given the nature of this story and given the location, did you storyboard? Did you shot list, or did you just say, "Oh, Oscar, just pick the prettiest place and point the camera there"? <laughs> because you know the scenery, in and of itself, is no matter where you point the camera, uh, at the vistas and the panoramic vistas, it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, we we were very deliberate in this and we, we were also um on a on a pretty tight schedule we shot 15 days oh in montana and, a, and four days in tokyo and so we were do, we were shooting about five pages a day and we had to be very efficient with our with our uh work and um so we did do some simple storyboard 
and shot list um, things. But then along the way, we, we wanted to be in the moment. Like you go into this with a re- really solid plan, but then you can adapt and adjust as we run the scene. Uh, a good example of this is, you know, we shot the scene where Hideki falls off the horse into the mud. <laughs> and there in the script, there was not anything after that that showed him getting on the horse. It, we next cut to them. He's on the horse and they're, and they're you know, uh, touring the ranch. And in, it wasn't until the moment that he slapped in the mud that I realized, we have to add a scene. We, ha- we have to see him, what happens next. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, you know, kind of pivoted and shot a scene where he just says, you know, I, d- I don't like this horse, you know, and it's a very funny moment, and I'm so glad that we did shoot that. But, but we wanted to be uh, kind of nimble and able to adjust to different um, uh, requirements of the story. Well, something that I really appreciate, and I think that when everybody sees this film that they will also appreciate, is that I would say probably 60 to 70% of this film, you you shoot with natural light outdoors. Yeah. And I love that you did that to take advantage of Mother Nature. Uh, it, it just looks so yeah. spectacular. And then it sets up more... Uh, when we go into the inn or the bed and breakfast, wherever Hideki is staying, you know, that it's all the dark woods. It's very warm. It's contained. The ranch, it's small. It's claustrophobic when you're inside. Um, so mm-hmm. I love that contrast of this wide open world. And it's very metaphoric uh, in terms of yes. Hideki and also Javier that it, here is the whole big wide world that they both can go out and conquer. Yeah, absolutely. And also the contrast between Tokyo and Montana and how we show that it was really important to to really, you know, we we did have the opportunity to go to Tokyo. And so we were bound and determined to show that we are in Tokyo as much as possible. And our actor, Arata, was um, so kind and willing to go in kind of guerrilla style and just, you know, Let's let's take Arata. Let's go with a camera. Let's get him on a train platform. Let's get on a train. Let's walk down this street, you know, and uh, that's kind of how they do it there. So uh, we were able to show kind of this cold, you know, blue um, Tokyo, busy Tokyo, and then contrast this with the wide open, warm Paradise Valley of Montana. Mm -hmm. And the same, it also speaks to that contrast is within the people themselves. It's very cold and unfeeling in Tokyo. Whereas you then see the contrast with all the ranch hands. And as we have the shift, the big shift in Hideki's story, whereas I like to call these, these are the come to Jesus moments after Javier has a sit down with him and says, look, you got to put forth some effort. You yeah. you want to make this work, which, uh, and we, which also comes on the heels of that very pivotal pivotal scene. To me, it was really one of the most important moments that we had to get right, and it was the last shot, the last scene that we shot in Montana was the Quintanera, oh. and that that just that long slow push in where you see the that Hideki, and we chose very deliberately also to not 
do any subtitles for the father's speech about mm-hmm. his daughter, because what what we're trying to I wanted the audience to to experience that moment like Hideki does, and he's not understanding a language; he's understanding an emotion, yeah. which kind of cracks, starts to crack him open, and he he you know he starts to cry, and he and I love you know when Javier asked him like why are you crying, and he says I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, I love that there were no subtitles there, um, and really the camera, the way Oscar pushes in on Hideki's face, yeah, and it's a slow push in and stops. You stop it before going into a, a totally extreme ECU. So yeah. we still have the ambient sense of what's around him, but you can see. The emotion that he's feeling, without understanding a word, is palpable. Yeah. And, and we see that. And that is a crucial, crucial moment in the film. And this is after we see the, the tree. You know, everybody yeah. has their cherry blossom tree. <laughs> yeah. You know, whether it's a cherry blossom tree or some other kind. Um. Everybody has that. I think every culture has something like that. Mm. That you plant it when a child is born or at a new home when first married. And you watch it yeah. grow over the, over the decades. So I think, Yeah, it has deep meaning. Yes. And the way that that's a very observational scene. That whole sequence, that quinceanera sequence is very observational. And yeah. it, it speaks volumes with very little dialogue. And it's so beautifully done, Mark. Just so beautifully done. And this is where your editing really shines because of holding mm. those shots, setting the pace. Yes. There's a very deliberate pace in this film until we really get to the third act. Then it gets looser. You loosen mm. it up in the third act. The first half of the film, a little beyond that, it's very deliberate, very measured, just like Hideki. Yes. Yeah, and I have to credit Yasu Inoue, our editor. Um, we, we needed to find an editor uh, who was bilingual, and um, Yasu was actually Dave Boyle, again, um, <laughs> came through, and he had the... Uh, the suggestion to contact Yasu, and uh, he he really was wonderful to work with. Yeah, I think the editing is extremely well done, and I do have to say, the final shot of the entire film, that is the money shot of all money shots, Mark. That is just breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. I mean, as we get to the end, like the last 10 minutes or so of the film in that third act, I mean, I was getting all teary because it really, it's all about change and growth and dreams. And you bring it all full circle. And we feel it when we watch it. We yeah. feel that. So <clears throat> when, when I, this, this goes back a bit for me personally to my experience living in Japan. So I went to Japan and I was kind of very, I, you know, this loud person and, <laughs> and the, my time in Japan caused me to become quieter. 
and to listen more and to become more humble. And that's really the journey of Hideki here. He, he, you know, he becomes more humble and he starts to listen. And, um, and so it is, it really is about bridging these divides between people. And Hideki is a character that's not connected to anything. He's not connected to the land. He's not connected to his fiance. He's not connected to his job really. And, and he needs to realize that. And he does through the course of the film. So that was, um, that's something that's, uh, yeah, important to me and kind of mirrors some of my own life experience. Well, and similarly, uh, to a degree, Javier as well. He did, oh, yeah. He also develops a very strong connection. And instead of being off on his own, welcomes somebody into his, his dream and his part of the world. And he also becomes more engaged uh, and not off on his own or standoffish. Yeah. Now, you can kind of imagine what their friendship is looks like in the future. Oh, absolutely. I want to see where Hideki and Javier are 20 years from now, in all honesty. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have to ask you about your score. This is, yes. Chad Cannon has done an amazing job with this. This is uh, one heck of an eclectic score. We've got shades mm. of uh, the Asian influences. We've got uh, a little bit of whimsy there as Javier and Hideki go out on horseback for the first time. Uh, you know, it rem almost reminded me in moments, these light moments of musicality of, you know, an old Disney 1930s cartoon. Mm. Um, but it's, and then you come in the third act, it's sweeping, cinematic. We're talking, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> magnitude of score. Talk to me about what you were looking for um, with Chad in terms of the score. Yeah, some of the early conversations, and we were so so lucky to be introduced to Chad. Um, Chad has done some amazing work uh, with a lot of different films. Uh, he he did the score for American Factory, mm -hmm. the documentary award winning, uh, Oscar award winning film. Mm -hmm. um, so he has a long track record and experience uh, doing uh, Asian themed uh, work. But our early discussions, we really wanted to. <clears throat> not really lean into anything too Asian or too much uh, like American West. Um, it, it, we wanted the, the music to really just punctuate the emotional um, moments of the, of the film. And that it, 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 you know, he does a wonderful job of using some traditional uh, instruments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got yes. the, uh, the, the, the drums and, and, uh, some wind in instruments and things, but, but he, it's not, you wouldn't say this is really, you know, uh, overtly Asian. Oh no, absolutely not. Music, right? Yeah, absolutely not. And, um, so, so that was, uh, something that we talked about early. And then, and then as we went along, I think the first thing that we heard from Chad, he did this, um, lonesome cowboy theme, which is you hear that when um, he's washing his suit and, and it's uh, this juxtaposition of 
you know, the disaster that's going on. And yet he's leaving a voicemail message for his fiance Keiko about how great everything is going. And we have this and this and with a whistle and um, and then he also did this amazing, you know, he used this counter tenor um, to do uh, the like the the, the uh, scene where he finds Javier in the field with the, mm-hmm. the with the quinoa, and later when he puts on the cowboy clothes for the first time, and he's out uh, by the river, and this this uh, beautiful counter tenor that um, Chad came up with. I, we were just very very happy with with Chad. Um, where where he got with the music and um in fact he did uh, just recently win uh best music at the boston film festival oh fabulous very proud of yeah i it's as i said it's very eclectic and it's not pigeonholed into any one kind of genre you can't listening to this score it's not you know you don't think oh it's horror oh it's a drama oh it's a comedy oh (laughs) it's you know it's a foreign film there's a little bit, uh, and even there's some strains in there that are very reminiscent of Ennio uh, and, mm. you know, Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, just absolutely so well done. But now I'm going to have to let you go here. I hate to do it, but before I mm. do, Mark, first feature film directorial under your belt. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making Tokyo Cowboy that you can now take Mm. forward into future directorial efforts? Well, the biggest thing for me was just, um, you know, looking at my journey to this point, um, I went to graduate film school 25 years ago. I, I made a couple of short films that did very well and, and I, I was really on a track. I, I wanted to do narrative feature films and uh, had a, a feature that I was attached to with uh, John Ritter uh, attached. And then he died and we couldn't c- quite get this project off the ground. And so I've had this long career of, you know, working in television, working in documentary, working in uh, corporate industrial work. And I've had a really wonderful career and I've loved it. Um, but I always knew in the back of my mind that, at some point I was going to start directing features. And so when it came to the time and, and, you know, the rubber hits the road, it's a very kind of terrifying thing (laughs) where you're like, you've been telling yourself all these years that this is something that you're really good at and you can do. And then you act like the moment comes and you're like, you have these self doubts, like, well, what if I can't, what if I'm not good at this? Um, But, uh, I was just at that point, I just decided I'm just going to be grateful for this opportunity. I'm going to just, you know, launch into it. I'm going to do the best I can and and just enjoy every moment. And I did. I, I loved it. And I actually did feel, you know, ha- halfway through it. Hey, this is I'm, I, I, I am good at this. I can do this. And uh, it was a lovely experience. And I do hope, uh, you know, depending on how this Tokyo Cowboy journey goes and how it's received uh hopefully i'll get to do uh more feature films as a director well folks here in southern california can see tokyo cowboy this thursday 
Yeah, they uh, actually Newport Beach added Film one more screening. Uh-huh. The, the the Thursday screening, the nineteenth, is sold out, I believe. And uh, but there's another screening on the eighteenth, Wednesday, which still has tickets, I believe. People can and, head down uh, to Newport Beach. Newport Beach gonna be there. We're really excited. Oh my God, Mark! This has been so fabulous getting to speak with you. I mean, I have seen your your shorts about Christopher making of Christopher Robin. Um, oh which is a film that, and the film itself I dearly love. I am forever immortalized with a pull quote on the back of the box. Um, oh, awesome. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> come on. You got Christy, you got Ewan McGregor and Pooh. What more could you want in life? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. But, so I'm just so thrilled with what you've done with Tokyo Cowboy. I can't wait to see what you do next. And you're gonna when you get when we get a distribution deal on this, you're gonna have to come back on the show so we can talk about it some more. Absolutely, I would love to. Oh, Mark, thank you so so much, and have a wonderful day in Hawaii. Uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Mark, for allowing me to be on the show. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. And that was Mark Marriott, director of Tokyo Cowboy, on the festival circuit. If you're at Newport Beach Film Festival, try and get tickets and see it. You will not be disappointed. Now we're shifting gears and getting into some serious territory here with Jeremy Pion Berlin. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for holding while I wrapped up with Mark Marriott about his film but boy talk about a film that you've got here this is a hot button documentary failure to protect <laughs> wow yeah yeah thank you yeah i know uh failure to protect it's um it's a doc about uh three different families uh, who have all uh sets of parents who've lost their kids to child protective services and it's you kind of go on a journey with these parents as they um, try to get their kids back and prove that they're not uh, monsters that you know the system is portraying them to be. But along the way, with these parents, you learn from experts like judges, attorneys, social workers, and people in the field about the bigger issues at hand. So you kind of you kind of get that greater context to what these families are going through. Now, what led you, this is not the kind of, of documentary film subject that you'd be sitting at breakfast and suddenly say, hey, I'm going to do something about CPS <laughs> and the dependent and the juvenile dependency court. Uh, where did the idea for this film arise? Yeah, uh, no, I was not eating breakfast when I came up with this yeah. idea, but... Um, no, my mother, uh, she's been working in the child welfare industry for over 30 years, and she runs a nonprofit called Parents Anonymous. And essentially, Parents Anonymous helps parents and families who get wrapped up in the child welfare system. It kind of helps them navigate the system, because if you never had contact with the system, you really have no idea what you're in for. Yeah. Um, and one day I was there at the nonprofit, and I was interviewing different parents, and I was just having one parent after another tell me their story of how did you get here? How did you lose your kids? And I kind of kept hearing the same story over and over again. 
the same injustices over and over again. The names were different, the faces were different, but it was the same kind of things happening to parent after parent. Um, and I left that day, just it kind of dawned upon me that I wanted to go on that journey with a parent of what it takes to get your kids back. And, you know, the other main thing was most of these parents were, you know, black or brown and of lower socioeconomic means. So I felt it was important to tell their stories because their voices weren't being heard. Mm-hmm. Now, you followed these families over the course of several years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is not, um, this it took was about not... three years to make. Uh, so uh, Anna and Retta, their case took about three years. Uh, the other parents, Trish and Ernst, was two, and Rosa was a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And how early did you get involved with each one of these families? Um, when I got involved with them, their kids were already taken. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of in the early stages, so about kind of six months into the process, I got involved with the families. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually pretty good timing to get into, you know, to jump into something of this magnitude and uh, with this many moving parts. Now, you've got a lot of what I found was really impressed by are the number of uh, experts, shall we say, that you speak mm-hmm. with and do interviews, such as uh, Judge Greenberg, the presiding, the presiding mm-hmm. judge of the Ju- Juvenile Dependency Court. And you've got a few attorneys happening here. You've got a social worker investigator, so you, uh, actual social workers, the deputy director of Child Family Services. You have, mm-hmm. you know, a great variety of people here. How did you go about wrangling all them in? Because this is such a tough subject that is so divisive yeah. and polarizing that I can't imagine people were raising their hands saying, ooh, me, 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 <laughs> I wa- I, I'll talk to you. Yeah, yeah. No, they were not raising their hands. They're, they're definitely not raising their hands. Um, yeah, you know, it was really critical for me to uh, get a full picture of the system from every angle and really understand that it's just really nuanced and there's nothing black and white about this system. And so uh, after I kind of met parents, you know, I had read this book called Culture of Fear, which really uh, exposes the system. It was written by this woman, Melinda Murphy, who was a social worker and then then started advocating for parents on the other side of things. So I had reached out to her and I got her on my side. Um, and then just kind of constantly reaching out to DCFS and just letting them know, like, I want to hear all the perspectives. I want to understand your struggles. What are the struggles of the social workers? What are the struggles of the children, the attorneys that represent these people? Um, and it was just it was just diligence and just letting them know that I was coming at it from a fair and balanced perspective. Um, and I wanted to hear all voices. Um, and so once I kind of interviewed with one people at DCFS, that went well and the judges heard good things about me and so they agreed to do an interview with me so i was fortunate enough but it was it took a lot of persistence a lot of emails definitely no hands raised that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was very surprised to see judge greenberg pop up in there uh as well as you know kim renner the the deputy director of Mm -hmm. dcfs um because those people really especially a film, how much did you have to disclose to them about your POV, your perspective on this film? Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because 
the main aspect of this film and the one of the main reasons I wanted to do it was for me is paramount to tell it from the parents' perspective. Mm-hmm. It's not that the kids don't matter. It's not that the social workers don't matter. It's just that, in my opinion, having looked at the system, it was clear to me that the parents' voices were the ones that were being the most squashed down upon, the most not listened to out of everybody in the system. So that's why I told it from their perspective as our main characters, but I wanted all the perspectives from the expert angle. But it's interesting when you when you even tell DCFS you're going to tell a documentary from the parent's perspective, you automatically get pushback. You automatically get a little tightening in the chest and they go, oh, well, you know, and you automatically you can kind of hear the voice change because they don't like that. They don't want to hear that perspective. And I was honest with them. I said, look, it's a, it's an expose on the system from the parent's point of view. And, um, you know, we're looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think the key thing with this system is what they love to defend in it is how the, how the system is supposed to work. And there is a huge gap between how it's supposed to work and how it actually works. And so that's why in the beginning of the film, the, those people within the system are really promoting it, like this is how this works, this is how that works. But then when you see the real people go through it, you realize that's actually not how it works. You know, now, was there ever a time when you were shooting this or when you were planning this that you thought mm-hmm. okay maybe you want to have add some other families for to counter as to ones that had an easy peasy road so to speak of going through um the i mean i'll be honest court. with you and i've met so many families you know i would hang outside the juvenile dependency court and parents after parents would come and talk to me and so i had engaged with so many families over the course and i've never i've i've heard of like very very few families who had an easy time with this system mm-hmm. you know because once an allegation is made by a child whether that child recants it or you find out that allegation is fake or a lie or whatever once the cat's out of the bag, they don't they don't turn around and say, "Oops, we made a mistake." Here, your kids back. They don't yeah. do that. Once you're in the system, it's a year minimum. They'll tell you six months, but I've never seen a case wrapped in under a year before. So, I didn't really see many of those easy peasy cases mm-hmm. out there. Now, I did meet with other parents and interviewed them, but at the end of the day, you know, there's only so many families you could fit into a feature film. Oh, absolutely. Three, fam- three families was a good good number uh, and I don't want to overload the audience with too much and how did you select the three families that you have well you know first of all these families are really brave to come out and mm-hmm. speak to me and, and put themselves out there in the middle of you know their their cases yeah you know, because they, this is a high stress time for them they're under a lot of scrutiny themselves as parents um, you know, they have to do these classes that are court mandated. So, um, you know, like, like I said, like you said earlier, no one's raising their hand to be a part of this. But yeah. um, I found Rosa through Parents Anonymous, the nonprofit. Um, and I just got connected to different forums online and Facebook. Um, and I, that's how I met Ernst and Trish. And then they knew Anna and Retta. And that's how I got connected with them. But, you know, it's a process. You got to build trust with these families. Uh, you got to connect with them you got to let them know your intentions um but i think the key thing was i wanted to listen to them and i was there to listen to them and tell their stories Mm -hmm. and 
they weren't, they're not being listened to. No one's hearing them. No one's giving them a voice. So, so when I come in and tell them, I want to listen, I want to give them a voice, you know, they responded well to that. Well, the I found really striking and fascinating was the journey of Trish and Ernst because mm-hmm. at the heart of their story is their young child Connor who has down syndrome and is on mm-hmm. and is on the spectrum as well and he was collateral damage from yep. a complaint the da- about that the daughter had Sure. Yeah, I mean that's very common with the system. So if, if there's a if there's an allegation or an abuse against or neglect or possible abuse against one child, they will take all of the children, um, pretty much every time, um, unfortunately. And they will mainly separate them in different foster care homes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, now and this um, based on just what you have shown in failure to protect. Does this inspire you to want to do a documentary just on foster care? Because we get a, <laughs> we get a glimpse of it here, but yeah, and yeah. you know, and what I found really I mean... what I found interesting, <laughs> Jeremy, is that there was an episode of Bones a number of years ago, and you know, the okay. character of Temperance Brennan, she had been in a foster family after her parents disappeared, and there was a comment. And there were a couple episodes dealing with children that were in the foster care system. And one of the lines that has always stuck with me is, you know, they give you a garbage bag and they put all your stuff in it. And it's almost like you feel like you're garbage. And that popped in my head as I'm watching Ernst with Connor and Mm -hmm. his stuff is being put into, you know, a plastic bag. And, uh, you know, that speak so loudly and it made me think my god would jeremy consider doing a documentary on the foster care system uh i mean look if uh, (laughs) someone out there wants to pay me to do that documentary i would be glad to um (laughs) it's like a natural um, extension of this yeah no i i totally get it and and the thing with the foster care system and unfortunately these judges they don't really weigh this you know um you know, when kids enter foster care, their odds of becoming homeless, going to jail, uh, not graduating high school, all these things, the numbers are just really depressing, put it that way. And they are really bad. And so what judges don't realize is that when you have a, maybe an imperfect home uh, where parents might have made some mistakes and need help, well, it's more beneficial for that kid to give that family services help them out, help them grow, help those parents grow, teach them better ways, and keep the kid in the home because the second you remove a kid and put them in foster care, A, you've created a traumatic experience. B, the situations that they're going into uh, are often far more traumatic than the home that they were in, and odds of abuse and neglect all skyrocket once you enter foster care. Um, So... It's an unfortunate system. There are great foster parents out there. There are great foster families, but, you know, it's a checks and balances thing, and the checks and balances aren't that strong. Would I make a documentary on foster care? Sure, I would. Uh, Part of me also loves changing up the subject matters, but if someone out there wants to finance that, I would be happy to. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not going to finance it myself. (laughs) You know, what was your process like once you start, once you, 
found your families and you started building up your list of uh, professionals to speak with uh, and interview for the documentary. When did your through line develop? How did you develop your through line here so that there is some context and continuity? Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was kind of an organic process of me integrating myself into this system and through, you know, reaching out and through connections built and relationships built, I was able to build relationships on all different spectrums of this system um, just through persistence and hard work and, and being open and honest with people. And so as I kind of did more research, as I got more information, I kind of pinpointed some recurring themes and recurring problems within the system, you know, like uh, the hearsay issue or um, not being able to understand the difference between neglect and poverty um, and, and seeing these different issues. And once I kind of started realizing people were complaining about the same things or defending the same things, I knew I needed to kind of focus on those same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, you know, connecting and building that, but then really was in the editing process um, and, 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 and trying to match the real life of what's happening to this parent, but put some context behind that and understand what is that law? What is that system behind that that's hurting that family today. And so I really wanted, that was really critical for me for the audience to understand the greater picture here of how things work and how they affect families. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you start your editing? Did you, were you editing as you went? Uh, did you wait until, you know, these, the legal situations had concluded for these three no, families? I mean, I, for the first, year and a half I didn't really do any editing maybe I didn't do anything I was just shooting um and then once the pandemic hit I you know I probably shot about 70 to 80 percent of it so once the start of the pandemic hit then I started editing and the last probably year of filming I was editing and filming and then once mm-hmm. I finished filming I had about eight five more months of editing that I did it in wow. so it kind of evolved naturally um but I wanted to have enough in the can to, to really start putting things together and see what I had. Mm-hmm. You know, how many hours of footage do you think you actually <laughs> had to go through on this one? <laughs> well, it's hard to say. I could tell, I could tell you in terabytes. Uh, it's like 17 terabytes of 4K footage. So, God, I don't know, 500 hours, 600 uh, hours. I actually did it without tr- transcripts because um, I didn't have money to pay to get the whole trans, uh, whole film transcribed. So I, I got to know my footage really well, and it kind of forced me to rewatch everything and really familiarize myself with the, the content. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, and so it actually it was harder that way, but it, it, in the end, it really paid off because I really knew what I had and I really knew where everything was. Was there anything that you were on the fence about that you know a kill your darling situation? It's like, oh, I really want to put oh, this kill in, your babies. but oh. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always, you got to kill babies. That's what, still, if you can't kill babies, you can't make films, I think. I mean, that's, that's really the end of the day. But I would say one section that I did, it was a little hard for me to kill. Um, there's, a, there's a part, there's a law called ASPA, Adoptions and Safe Families Act. It was a major law um, in 97, actually, uh, Hillary Clinton championed while she was first lady. 
And the law essentially changed the child welfare system to, to what we know it as it, what it is today. Before this law, the child welfare system was much different. I mean, if there is a claim of abuse or neglect, the kids would go to grandma, grandpa that day. Uh, foster care was a much harder option to get to. Mm-hmm. But what happened was when they passed that law is that they wanted to move more to an adoption focus. And so we, we touch on it in the, in the section about money of how right. the county agencies are paid four to $8,000 per child they move from foster care to adoption. So you're incentivizing agencies essentially to take kids and adopt them out because that's how they make money. And so with this law that I kind of get more into in the section of one of my babies I killed was that um, it changed the child welfare system into really being focused on adoption because it does happen. Some kids, they languish in the system, right? And they, you know, they can't go home, but the foster care parent isn't really their parent. And so you get bad results, which those do happen. But unfortunately, however the money flows, that's how these systems work, right? So if you incentivize them financially to take more kids, they're going to take more kids. If you incentivize them financially to help families and give them resources, well, then they'd help families to give them more resources. So um, that was one of the babies. Yeah, and that's a really dicey one, too, because that gets so political in terms of legislation Mm -hmm. and allocating funds. Yeah, no, it's a... And another reason I really like this issue is that I felt like, you know, whoever I interviewed, whether it was a conservative or a progressive, um, I found that a lot of people actually agree about this and about the problems within the issue. Now, obviously, the conservative angle is more like government intervention they don't like. And then the progressive angle is they don't like the racial and the socioeconomic problems with it. But they both kind of agree about the core issues within the system. And so I liked it on that regard because it's not one of those political issues where you can just draw the red and the blue and they're on that side and they're on that side. It's very much not like that. You know, anytime you get kids involved with anything, I think you're going to find that. Because people, collectively, people do care about, you know, kids. Kids and animals. Yeah. They care about. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, nothing else. Nothing else, but kids kids and animals. (laughs) And very old people. But, uh, (laughs) so, but it's so interesting. And then, you know, you didn't fall down on the job, but then you went, uh, you know, and you paid attention to your score as well. You provided a score with this. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big shout-out to my incredible composer, um, Lucas Santiago Cantor, made an incredible score, um, got a lot of live musicians in this, which I think gives it some breath and some originality. And, you know, you just try to take every piece of the film, and you just, I always try to make every element of my film as original as I can and not, uh, you know, short, you know, shorten anything and um, do it the right way. Now, what were you looking for musically to as the undercurrent to buttress um, the this story that you have woven together? Uh, because it's not this very easily could have been very maudlin from the musical perspective. Yeah, and you kept it, and you didn't go that route. No, I, I think. Look, I, I think 
here's for music for me is, and I think uh, one of the great uh, composers, Carter Burwell, said this. He's like the Cohen brother composer. Is that music needs to bring an element to the story that doesn't already exist, right? So I think the natural pick for uh, you know a kind of a sad subject matter that's kind of intense is every all the music is sad and intense, but like we we wanted to add more of that childlike element to it and kind of give it a little bit more of a breath. And I really wanted to be in that classical genre um, because I just wanted it, you know, to be focused emotionally and intellectually. And I think uh, Lucas did a great job with the music, and I think it adds a lot to the film, um, personally. It it buoys it, and it keeps it from getting bogged down because this is tough subject matter. And Mm -hmm. it's the kind of subject matter that some people would immediately shy away from or turn off if they were watching it uh, because it is yeah. so difficult. So you need something that's going to counter that. And I think that the score does that beautifully. Yeah, exactly. We thought the score could add that lightness to it. And like, you know, I, I know people can say, Oh, it's, it's depressing and sad. You know, one person said to me after they saw the film, you're like, you know what? I was actually inspired by the film and, and felt uplifted because now I know all this information you know what I mean? And I wanted to arm people with information. Uh, it's not about, like, believing this parent versus this child or right or wrong. It's like I wanted to give that unvarnished uh, emotional and intellectual information to people so they can understand it. Well, in the process of your research and in speaking with families and with all these professionals and experts, what was the most surprising thing that you learned because obviously, mm. with a document with a documentary, you're going to actually learn new information versus a narrative film, uh, for so to speak. So, yeah. what was the most surprising thing that you learned in this journey about this subject? I mean, there's a lot of surprising things. You know, I would say one of the most surprising things is just the culture within the these. Um, you know, child welfare departments, essentially. And, you know, if a social worker wants to recommend uh, children be returned home to a parent, um, they will often be told uh, by their supervisors that they can't, that they won't. And if you don't listen to your supervisor, if you try to buck the system and say, no, they've done everything they need to do, they need to get their kids back, you'll be removed off that case and you'll be shunned. Um, And so that was kind of, very shocking to me that you know supervisors or super super uh, or their bosses will tell social workers like no you can't return the kids no and if you don't you'll be removed and so just that pervasive fear within these systems of essentially they just don't want to get sued that's all they care about every Mm -hmm. time you see a new child welfare law passed the reason why they passed that law is because they were sued um, and, and there's many, many civil rights cases against um, these systems, and that's how they change. They don't change any other way besides being sued. So that was pretty shocking. Wow. That is that is shocking. So now how exciting is this for you that Failure to Protect will be available tomorrow digitally for everybody to see? I mean, I, I'm so thankful. <laughs> I'm very happy. This has been a... Uh, been a labor of love, a lot of hard work, um, you know, and 
incredible people that helped me work on this film. Um, and so I'm just so grateful that, you know, I got distribution. It'll be available on Amazon tomorrow and on demand to rent or purchase. And um, I just wanted to get out there and people to see it and um, hopefully start conversations and, and keep going and keep talking and keep connecting with people um, and hearing different stories. And I just, and I hope that it can open some people's eyes and open their hearts too. So now what's next on your plate after failure to protect is available to everyone tomorrow. Are you working on anything else right now? What, what's next Uh, for Jeremy? (laughs) Right now I'm currently actually, uh, in Kentucky, uh, I'm co-executive producer of the sixth season of a television show called Murder in the Heartland. Uh, it's a Discovery Channel show. Uh, airs on Investigation Discovery Max and Discovery Plus. So I'm working on this show uh, till the end of the year, and then uh, you know we'll see what what's next. Uh, you know, to be continued. Um, I don't know. I'd like to find the next story. Is the goal? Do you want to stay with documentary? Uh, I love documentary and narrative. I, I love both, and I, and I love to do both. Um, and I actually have a short narrative film that I just finished up that I'll be uh, getting out there at the end of the year as well, and I, I write feature scripts. So I hope to do both and, and, and uh, keep pushing forward on both. But obviously, subject matter like this that has impact on people's lives, that, that you know what I mean, that has that socially conscious aspect is the stuff that I'm most passionate about um, and I hope to do more of that kind of work in the future. Well I can't wait to see what you bring us next Jeremy. This has been so wonderful to have you on the show today talking about failure to protect and I hope we get to do this again in the near future. Yeah I appreciate you so much for having me on and uh, thanks so much. Oh thank you Jeremy and you have a great rest (laughs) of your day in Kentucky. I will. I will. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Jeremy Pion Berlin. So, we get a call from Hawaii. We get a call from Kentucky. Dave Boyle, you could have called from Japan. That's all I'm going to say. As Pam sits there and cringes after all the trouble we had just getting with Canada calls. Uh, But, Two films for you. Tokyo Cowboy on the festival circuit. Be on the lookout for it. Uh, has a website, and I forget what it is at this very moment, uh, but you can Google it. But it is Tokyo Cowboy Newport Beach Film Festival this week. They added another show, as Mark uh, Marriott said, on Wednesday the 18th, October 19th. That's sold out. Um, but... And then I know there are more cities coming up and more festivals for Tokyo Cowboy. So make sure you check that one out. And then, of course, Failure to Protect. Hot topic. Uh, Hot topic. Child Protective Services focusing on three different families uh, and the parents' perspective of uh, of the DCFS and the dependency court process uh, in the state of California. That is available tomorrow on all those usual digital and VOD suspects. So, next week, we got another full house next week. 
And I'm very excited because Jenna St. John and Kevin Good, who have been on live in studio before, they have called in before, they are back to talk about their series, Sexpectations. And you heard them talk about it here in one of the first interviews they did years ago when they started on the journey for Sexpectations. And now it debuts, it releases next Monday at the same time that Kevin and Jen are going to be with us. So I'm very excited to have them. And we're going to be talking with the director of Sick Girl. So, very quickly before we go, I have to say it. Happy 100th anniversary, Disney. Today is October 16th, the 100th anniversary of when Walt and Roy founded Disney. Uh, So... I can't wait to see what the next hundred years brings. Hopefully, an improvement in the stock price. So, as Pam sits in the booth and laughs at that. uh, So, (laughs) that's all the time we have today. (laughs) Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.